Hello and welcome to At The Letters for Monday, July 24th, 2023. This is the last At The Letters edition before the trade deadline. Uh, so we've got Shai Davidi here to break it down with this on an episode that is produced by Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Arden in the midst of some travel to LA where he's going to be covering this Dodgers Blue Jays series with me. Uh, but Shy, gracious enough to step in and uh, talk some trades. So thanks for being here, Shy. Pleasure as always, Ben. Well, we've got a lot to get to. We're going to talk about the actual baseball team to some extent. We're going to talk about the Blue Jays and what trades they could make. I also want to touch on their division rivals and the kind of moves that they might make because I think it's kind of equally significant as to what the Blue Jays will do when you look at the trade deadline, the stretch run, and where all of that leads. Um, so totally. we'll have that. Yeah, it's it's pretty significant. So we'll we'll get to that. But I guess like big picture shy, like as we as we start this discussion here a week and a day out from the trade deadline. Where do you see the Blue Jays and their needs and what you think is the most likely path ahead for them right here? Okay, so I think the most likely path is a path we've talked about for a while where it's not necessarily periphery moves, but complementary pieces, not necessarily the type of impact ads that we may see from other teams. I think that's the likeliest path. But there's a part of me that wonders if they just maybe end up trying to do something a bit more significant than we're thinking about. And I know it's going to be tough. And I know that the prospect capital situation is a little bit delicate for this franchise right now. But even though it seems like it's been this really disappointing year in some ways, like this is a good team that just needs something to try to make it click. And do you try to do something on the periphery or, or complementary pieces and, and just hope that a little bit more depth pushes anything together? Would you maybe try to do something that gives the team a bit of a jolt? And I think part of what happens over the course of this week plays into that maybe where you know, the, the Blue Jays feel if they feel a couple guys start turning the corner. We saw Alejandro Kirk have a couple good games. Here's a ball drilled, and I mean drilled. And how good must that feel for Alejandro Kirk as he lines one out? Maybe Dalton Varsho gets hot, and all of a sudden, maybe this team's feeling a little bit different about some things. But if neither of those things take hold. I just think there's a pathway to something a bit more significant if they feel that that's necessary and they feel that maybe the group needs it. Yeah, I, I like that line of thinking. And you have to consider it if you're the Blue Jays front office. I mean, that is why they exist, is to augment the Major League team, obviously to preserve the depth of the minors and keep things going long-term as well. They're working on two fronts. I, I do think, as a kind of quick note here, like having Barger come on the way he has recently and having Tiedemann, you know, getting a bit back to health, having a draft to reinforce the minor league system a little bit. I, I know you've written a lot about this in the last month, but maybe it's not as desperate as it was. Like maybe there's a little bit more inventory and maybe that allows them to move some of these pieces. Yeah, that's a fair way to look at things. The difficulty is everybody knows the situation the Blue Jays are in. Right. They, it's a team that's made a bunch of subtraction deal uh, from a prospect capital vantage point subtraction deal to try to reallocate resources to the big league level the past few years. 
and the selection isn't as plentiful as in years past. And the Blue Jays do have some free agencies coming up where that's relevant. You know, perhaps most significantly, you mentioned Barger. You know, is Barger, is Aurelvis Martinez in some way, shape or form in combination with Santiago Espinal, maybe part of a potential solution at third base next year if Matt Chapman departs, as is probably most likely to happen. I think that's on the table, too. But on the flip side, not every team is going to be buying, right? And right now, it looks like a lot of teams are buying, and that's going to get whittled down over the next week. And all of a sudden, there's going to be more options on the market, and there's going to be fewer bidders. And I think that creates a window to maybe for the Blue Jays to be able to perhaps find a sweet spot. you know. And the other thing to kind of kick around and this is sort of a minor consideration, but I think it's really interesting about their thinking is that the one deal they've made at the deadline that I think is somewhat out of character was Mitch White for Nick Frasso last year. And in the grand scheme of things, it's probably a relatively minor deal. You know, Nick Frasso will see, it looks like he's got some promise, but you know, there's certainly some health concerns there, which I think is partly why that trade happened. But if the Blue Jays didn't feel they absolutely needed more pitching depth last year, that's a deal they don't do. That was a deal they felt they had to do, I believe. And I think that's why they did it. I think they were perhaps a little bit out of their comfort zone with that. And I wonder if we may see that on a bigger scale a bit this year. Right. Yeah. Just to make sure that you're servicing the big league team enough. I mean, it's as we record this now, so they lost two of three against the Mariners over the weekend. And, uh, you know, the, the, we don't need to relive the, uh, the pain of some of those losses, uh, necessarily, but let's zoom out. You know, they're 55 and 45. They're the best third place team in baseball. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. And you look at their odds, right? From fan graphs to win the division, still a 13% chance. It's not nothing. They are a 71% chance to get into the playoffs and they're a 5.6% chance to win the World Series. And the only three teams that have better odds than the Blue Jays, substantially better odds, are the Rays, Atlanta, and the Dodgers. So this is a team that deserves to be augmented. And I think we've spent so much time talking about, you know, will they reach their potential? And so many things have gone wrong. Alec Manoa this, and Vlad Jr. that, and Vladdy's hitting homers again, by the way. But, you know, it's it's so easy to get negative with this team for some reason. I, I, I don't know why. And like, they've obviously got their flaws. They're not perfect, but they're still pretty good. And I think, you, you know, sometimes you just watch other teams for a few days and then you're like, yeah, the Blue Jays are better than those teams. You know, it's still a good baseball team. For sure. And I think partly why that happens, it's the 7-20 and 20 versus the American League East where it feels like there's this massive gulf between them and their rivals. And there actually isn't. Like most of those losses are like between one and two runs or they were often a pitch or a a swing away from being vastly different. And that didn't happen. So I think that's partly what feeds into that feeling a little bit. But it's also like, you know that this team hasn't played its best. That's why I think that negativity is there. But you're right. And I think the question is really from a Blue Jays standpoint, like how do you tip the scales and get them to the point where you know, they're playing like the Rays did in the first half of the season, or they're playing with the consistency and the steadiness that the Orioles have showed throughout the year. Because that's really the bar, right? And then they go and have a series like they did in Seattle, where they let two very winnable games slip through their fingers. 
They had opportunities to open up both games. One of the games they did open up and it still unraveled on them. Why are those things happening? And how do you turn that around? That I think is really the big question. And maybe it's just a matter of time and waiting things out. And we know baseball is weird and baseball is dumb. And, you know, as more you try to control it, you can't. But I I think really that's the overriding question the Blue Jays are, are wrestling with this week. Well, and, and look, like it might be that they spend all year hoping and wishing that they get on one of those runs where they're unstoppable and it doesn't happen. Like they might just be an 89 win team. That's okay. You can still be an 89 win team, win a wild card series, like start with winning a playoff game. That's, that's the first step for this group, but right. you know, a single playoff game, but then you can win to make your way through the wild card series. You're in the division series. Watch out like Gosman, Barrios. Hey, that's a pretty good uh, combo to throw out there in a playoff series. They certainly could win in the playoffs um, now with the right additions. And so this is where, you know, I, I think like for me, I've thrown this out there, you know, on at the letters and, and other places as well, that to me, the simplest, like least controversial, most effective plan for the Blue Jays is just acquire Tommy Pham and David Robertson from the Mets. Boom, you're done. That's it. It's not going to deplete your system. Your team's going to be better. Hit out to left field. Fam going over toward the gap, and he slides and makes the catch. Nice play by Tommy Pham on his knees for the first down of the game. Fam, you see? But let's consider some bigger possibilities here, and I'll throw a couple names out. You can you know, grab onto any of them that you think are interesting here, but Cody Bellinger is going to be out there uh, for the Chicago Cubs, left-handed hitter. He's actually hit better against left-handed pitching this year. Great defender. Um, having a good offensive season. You got Tommy Edmond with the Cardinals, said to be available, according to some reports. Um, you look at a guy who doesn't strike out, switch hitter, great speed, versatility, control beyond this year. And even a guy like Tim Anderson, who is a free agent, to me, that one doesn't make sense at all, but he's been linked to the Jays. So where do you see, do you see any of those guys being interesting? Do you see other guys off the board being more interesting when we're talking about bigger names here? Yeah, I mean, sign me up for a lot of that, right? <laughs> when I was talking earlier about maybe something a bit more significant, to me, I think Cody Bellinger would be that more significant piece. And the Blue Jays were on him during the offseason. They were trying to get him. And then when they didn't get him, that's when they pivoted to Kevin Kiermeyer. So there is definite level of interest there. And I think when it comes to someone like him, the question becomes, okay, are you willing to take away at bats from potentially Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermeyer and maybe Brandon Belt a little bit to make it work? That's this more significant pathway. That's the pathway where, you know, the Blue Jays say, you know what? We can't just get a right handed bat off the bench. Can't just be Tommy Pham who plays three to four times a week. We need to add someone to our lineup that the other team has to game plan against that's going to put some fear in the pitchers. When they're working through a batting order, they're going to understand this guy's there waiting, so you're going to pitch the guys ahead of him differently. If you make that kind of decision, then Cody Ballinger, to me, is an incredible fit because we've talked about it forever. You know, left-handed power, the Blue Jays have been trying to get it. You know, they've got some more left-handed options, but you know, Dalton Varsho hasn't to this point been that consistent left-handed power threat. He, he can go deep at any time, but he hasn't produced, you know, Brandon belt has been tremendous, but he doesn't hit a ton of home runs. And if you get that in the four, the three or four spot, and then maybe you have belt at five and then Varsho at seven, yeah. 
this lineup looks a lot different. So I think that one makes sense. Like Tommy Edmond is super interesting too, that somebody who you've got control of well beyond this year, there's utility. I think the the thing with Tommy Edmond is you're going to take away possibly some playing time from Whit Merrifield and, and maybe from Kevin Biggio a little bit, Santiago Espinal. It, it's, Isn't that okay it's though? It's a great... Like, it's a great fit. Sure. It's a great fit next year. But I think this year, again, there has to be some subtraction that comes with that. And yeah. so that that's a bit of a decision, but a different one. Yeah. And I think, look, we've seen the Blue Jays. I think what Merrifield's a great example. Jose Barrios is a great example of the Blue Jays using the trade deadline as a way to do some offseason shopping. Even last year, like with Zach Pop, even though it hasn't worked out that way, and Anthony Bass, the thought was, okay, well, we've got these two relief pieces for the bullpen this year. And again, didn't work out, but that was the plan. That was the plan with Mitch White. So we could see the Blue Jays try to make a move like that. Uh, and then look, I know that he hasn't been great all season, but you know, Jordan Hicks over the last few weeks yeah. has been about as good as any reliever in baseball. Last couple months, really. Chopper hit towards second. Step on the back. Throw to first and the Cardinals win the series. Hicks outstanding work in the ninth. Arenado's home. Yeah. And I think that that's going to be very expensive. I don't think it's particularly likely, but if you really want to make a big difference to your bullpen, you know, yeah, Chad Green could potentially be that and it's in house, but he's coming off Tommy John surgery. I'm not sure what's fair to kind of put on him and in, in sort of that role, but you know, you've got him and Jordan Romano and then you've got Jimmy Garcia. And if he gets back, Nate Pearson and Tim Meza. All of a sudden, that's a pretty loaded back end of the bullpen. Yeah, exactly. I think I think Hicks was a no brainer. I think he makes a lot of sense. Edmund would cost more as well. Um, the Cardinals uh, seemingly looking for pitching to augment a team that's really disappointed this year. You know, I don't know if the Jays necessarily have a ton there to be able to make that work. Uh, we do know these teams have certainly talked in the past. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Edmund makes makes sense on paper but again that's a bigger swing because he can do a lot of things and he could help uh, the Cardinals win as soon as next year so that's speculation on my part Um, but I do think like yeah of course like it makes sense to explore this and again if you're the Blue Jays front office you have to at least be thinking what can we do Um, that's a bit of a bigger swing because if there's a chance where you know, the Orioles and the Rays stumble. We've seen the Rays stumble now, kind of play 500 ball for a couple months. What if the Orioles have a stretch like that for the next six weeks? You know, what if the Orioles go out there, kind of do nothing at the deadline, they get like Michael Lorenzen and call it a day and they fall back. Like you want to put yourself in a position to seize on that 13% because getting a buy, I mean, that would be incredible. And it's, I'm not saying it's likely, but it's not impossible. And so as a front office, they need to be considering ways to do that. Yeah, I think you, you've stated it really well there, Ben. And, you know, the one thing to keep in mind too, there's still, bless my math is off, 25 games remaining against the American League East. The final two weeks of the season is all New York and Tampa. And that's going to be a wild, wild stretch to, to end the season with 12 games there. And then beyond that, you've got seven games with the Orioles as well. So, you also have to think that that seven and 20 against the American League East normalizes, right? Like, and last year it didn't against the Red Sox. Blue Jays went 16 and three. And the difference between them and the Red Sox last year, if you take away head to head, 
is one game. The Blue Jays were one game better against everybody else in baseball yeah. by one game over the Red Sox. And 16 and three is why they're in the playoffs and the Red Sox are like, what happened? Yeah. I mean, again, baseball, dumb <laughs> happens. Uh, excuse me, dumb, <laughs> dumb stuff happens. Forgive me. Davidi unhinged. Uh, <laughs> and maybe that repeats this year. But again, you would think that that also may normalize at some point too. For sure. Now, uh, before we step aside here for for a quick moment, Shai, I want to throw I want to throw some just some possibilities at you, okay? So, because we spend a lot of time thinking, what should the Jays do? And I throw out, you know, like takes, I guess you could say, where it's the Blue Jays should go out and acquire Tommy Fan and David Robertson. But let's not stop there. I, I'm going to also throw out what I think the other American League East teams should do. So, Yankees, they need a bat, but they're not good. So, they should go out and acquire like a Mark Canna, someone to show that they're trying to improve but ultimately not really do that much. Red Sox. Ooh, the, the crosstown <laughs> pickup from the Mets. That that's is right. a bold. That's a bold one. That's my least bold one. Um, it gets a slightly <laughs> bolder from here. Red Sox, they need some pitching. They you know need to, to add to their pitching staff. Their offense is pretty good, um, but I think they should go out and get Lorenzen from the Tigers. Again, it won't cost that much, but as a gesture, you want to be showing your fans and your, and your players that you're trying to compete. So I think Lorenzen is a good fit for Boston. Hmm. What do you think about that? I like Lorenzen a lot. Uh, I should think he'd fit great for the Jays as well. I could see, you know, I think would be good in Boston, Lance Lynn. I love that. And I also could see the Red Sox buying low on a guy like Lance Lynn. He's been great since he's come off, or at least when we saw him in Chicago, he looked unreal against the Blue Jays. And you put a bit of a, a better team around him, a little bit of extra motivation, and I think he could take off. Okay, I like that for the Red Sox as a as a Lorenzen alternate. But we're talking, you know, pending free agent, someone who can just give them some innings. And then Baltimore, I think there's a case to be made that Baltimore should swing bigger. But I'm going to keep this into the modest tier, and I'm going to say that they should acquire Lucas Giolito. Again, they need some pitching. Giolito will be available. I don't think the cost would be nothing, but I think the cost would be affordable. And then the Orioles at that point are just a little bit less dependent on Dean Kramer pitching, you know, as well as he had, which is which is very well. I like that. I also, and we've talked about this privately a number of times with Arden as well. Uh, former Blue Jay Marcus Stroman pitching for the Baltimore Orioles seems like. A, a good fit there too. I, I like that. I'm with you. I think the Orioles, they're sitting on the best prospect trove in baseball. They've got redundancies. Their 40 man is going to start getting jammed up soon. This is the time to start consolidating some talent for your big league club. And maybe you go try to get like a Dylan Cease, someone who's going to be with you for a little bit of time, a little bit of runway and, and maybe help push you to the next level. Well, if you like consolidation trades, you'll love what I have in store for the Rays because I think they should acquire from the San Diego Padres not only Michael Waka to help their rotation because they do need a starting pitcher, but Juan a Soto. Reunion in Tampa. Juan no, a reunion Soto. in Tampa with Michael Waka and Juan Soto. <laughs> yeah. <let's>, sure. <laughs> um, sure. So that's why the, not most, that's the one that's most out there. But I actually think that, and we don't know if the Padres are even going to consider that, but if the Padres go, let's say it's, I don't know, two and six. Um, ahead of the deadline and or maybe they don't have maybe it's one and six ahead of the deadline I don't know I think the Rays would be so much better with Juan Soto obviously and I think it kind of makes sense for them to kind of push aside the Orioles and even the Blue Jays and just go for it and he's controllable for next year too 
So that's my most out there idea. But I, I think that if he's available, the Rays should do it. I would love to see the Tampa Bay Rays do that. And I'm trying to think, is that completely out of character? And I'm blanking, but I feel like there was a move akin to this they made a few years back, which was a bit of a bigger swing and a bit more unexpected. Well, or was they, it an, they were said to that? be on Soto last year when he was uh, a national and they pursued Freddie Freeman. I mean, that was uncharacteristic. Right, that, that was the, the Freddie Freeman. That's that's the one where it was like, OK, this is really out of character for them. Yeah. So they'll occasionally do something really outside the box. I know that you've you've talked about it with Arden a little bit, and I'm still not convinced there is a deal out there for Shohei Otani that makes sense. But every team in this division has a case to go for Shohei Otani, and it's almost certain to be a rental. It sounds like he's going to end up back in the West Coast, and a lot of people think the Dodgers is a done deal. I know some people think that Artie Moreno is is going to do everything in his power to make sure that he doesn't depart. Some people think there's the Seattle's kind of laying in wait there for him. But can you imagine Shohei Otani on any team in this division and how quickly it just upends everything? It would be amazing. If the Orioles or Rays acquired him, then they would instantly be the favorite to emerge um, and win the division. Mm-hmm. And I think even in a two-month span, that would be a real difference maker. If you put him on the Blue Jays, then you're looking at three teams all of a sudden that are kind of equally positioned um, because I think he would boost their odds from 13% to 20% single-handedly to win that um, American League East. So ultimately, I really don't think he moves. I think that when you think about a guy who could push for 60 home runs, who the Angels might want to acquire or re-sign after this season. You think about the endorsement deals um, here in LA. Um, you think about the possibility of, yeah, just disappointing those fans, attendance down the stretch. I, I just don't see them moving him, but it would be incredibly entertaining if they did. Oh, for sure. It'd be, every once in a while, there's a handful of industry-shaking move or transaction. Juan Soto was that a couple years back. And this would be, it's, it's weird, right? Because Soto came with two and a half years of control. Yep. So it was a bit more of a significant change. But I feel like this would be more of an industry shifting move because it would be the first time the Angels are taking a significant subtraction step instead of just, we're just going to keep running it back with different pieces and see what happens. And so it, it's, it's a massive shift that way. And then, of course, there's no player like Shohei Otani, who is going to impact you at an elite level on both sides of the ball. And, and the Angels aren't a especially good team. They just aren't. They're 500 with Shohei Otani. Like that tells you what you need to know. And it's that's right. not necessarily, you know, that's an ownership situation that goes back years and years and years. The front office, which includes a lot of for, ex uh, Blue Jays front office employees, they have their marching orders, which is to put a competitive team on the field. They're not thinking four right. years down the road right now. It's like let's get Eduardo Escobar and Mike Mustakas and like hope it works, you know. But it, it's not a deep enough roster to, to, in my opinion, even make the playoffs. But I still think they keep Otani. Right, and you know if they can hang around, they've kind of been hanging around. You've got Mike Trout coming back at some point, and so you're going to get the second best player in baseball back on your roster. Like That's a pretty good ad. And if you can hold on, but you're asking a lot of guys who 
generally don't perform at this level to keep going. And that's that's sort of the the tough part for the Angels. All right. Well, we will discuss uh, much more with respect to the Blue Jays and the trade deadline when we come back. But for now, a quick break before we return on At The Letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to At The Letters, which you can find wherever you find your podcasts. And thanks for making some time for us uh, today. Much appreciated to have you aboard as the deadline approaches. And uh, and Shai, we want to go behind the scenes here a little bit, as Arden and I have done periodically throughout the season on ATL. But the trade deadline is a kind of specific time of year. And it's really a distinct time. You've covered a lot of them over the years, as have I. And it is, for me, a mix of fun and some fatigue in there as well. It's a busy time. Ultimately, like if you imagine a world without the trade deadline, it's so much worse. Like having a trade deadline is awesome. Um, so I'm, you know, pro trade deadline. But you know, let's go behind the scenes a little bit. What are your personal uh, experiences of covering the deadline? Do you like it? Where do you land on this? So it's kind of funny. I actually think the experience has changed dramatically over time, especially with how omnipresent it's become with social media and. I've really become more conscious of the human cost of it over time and especially on players and their families, even on, you know, coaching staffs, managers, scouts, executives, every, everybody really bears it. But it's also a vastly different experience if you are on a team that's buying versus a team that's selling. I'll give you a couple examples of that. So 2016, the Blue Jays were buying. We we're in Houston. I believe it was Houston. And... The deadline had just passed and Troy Tulowitzki came out of the clubhouse and he was about to do some work on the field. And he's like, okay, tell me who we got. And I'm like, okay, just got Scott Feldman. He's going to cross over from the dugout in Houston and got Mike Bolsinger. And he looked at me, he's like, Bolsinger, curveball guy from LA. And I'm like, yeah, curveball guy from LA. He's like, oh, okay. And I go, and I think there's one more. Like, I'm hearing that there's something else that's getting finalized right now. I didn't have it yet. He's like, okay. He's like, let me know when you hear. And it ended up being Francisco Liriano uh, in that deal. And that level of engagement, like the players are pumped, right? They're like, who are we getting? How are we going to get better? We want to get after this. It's super exciting for them. On the flip side, I think back to 2018, we're in Oakland. And I walked into the clubhouse and Russ Martin sees me. He's like, hey, this is your Super Bowl, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if it's my Super Bowl. Uh, but he goes, well, you, uh, you're wearing your Super Bowl suit. I was wearing a suit I don't often wear. I guess he noticed. <laughs> and I started to laugh. And we ended up kind of talking. And he'd been through it a number of times as a player. He started talking about the human cost and some of the pressures. And the Jays were selling that year. And it was not long afterwards that Joe Smith ended up getting traded and John Axford ended up getting traded. It was very emotional for John Axford. He was almost in tears. He loved his times with the Blue Jays. So he was excited to go to a contending club. But pitching for the Blue Jays had meant a lot to him and it really revived his career a little bit. So I was really conscious of both of those things. And I think back a lot to those the, the different ends of the spectrum. 
and how for one team it's so deflating versus the other side where, you know, it's so energizing. And then you combine that with all the constant talk about it, speculation like you and I have done on this yep. podcast, uh, and it just surrounds them. So I, I try to be really conscious of that. I try to be really respectful of that as much as we can while balancing the fact that we do need to talk about these things because it they're newsy. I've become a bit more conscious of how uh, executives sometimes may you know want to use us to get different messages out and they would never I've, shy they would never no every everybody's everybody's on the up and up at this time of year right everything you hear is 100 accurate i've tried to be a little bit more conscious about that and just be a little bit sensitive to to the people whose lives are being affected by this because it does like every little thing is going to get back to them like players are hearing it from their friends or hearing it from their family uh they're close to their loved ones saying hey are you going here i just heard this what do you hear and like it's it can be draining for them. No doubt. So that's sort of the downside of this, but it is also an incredibly fascinating time of year. And it, you're, you're so curious, like where, what's everybody going to do? What's it going to look like after, because this is the final, this, especially since they got rid of the August uh, waiver period, this is it. This is yep. your last talent infusion. So better get it right. I do kind of like the, I miss the August trades, but that's another story. We'll, we'll leave that one for a, for a, maybe an off season podcast for August. For yeah, August. exactly. But it's true. And you know, like you think back to even like 2015, right. And I think of those two big trades and in hindsight, it's kind of like, oh my goodness, these are, let's go. Like the Jays are about to go on this run. You didn't know that at the time. And in fact, as you remember, well, when they actually acquired Troy Tulowitzki, they gave up Jose Reyes, and that didn't necessarily go over that well in the clubhouse. Like no. it was actually like Jose Batista, among others, was actually kind of like, we don't actually love this trade. So um, at least that was my interpretation of it. I don't have the direct quotes in front of me. And um, then you contrast that though to when they got David Price, and it was like, let's go. So go. you know, you kind of have like players really react to this. And uh, of course, when when the Blue Jays make their moves a week from now, the existing players on this team will be asked about it and they'll try to say the right things regardless. But, you know, these players, you know, you think about how invested fans are. Players are more invested. <laughs> you know, it's their team. Mm -hmm. They, of course, want things to, they want an upgrade to their roster. Funny story about the Tulowitzki trade. So if you remember, the Blue Jays had just come back from a series in Seattle and stop if this sounds familiar, where things didn't go very well for them in the series. I think they, they'd had, uh, they'd hit into a triple play in that game. And it was a weird triple play where I think Ezekiel Carrera and Kevin Pillar both ended up at third base at the same time. Oh, yeah. And, and one of them didn't know the rules. So one of them got tagged, the, the, the runner tagged both of them and they weren't sure which one was out. So both came off the bag. I think Carrera was, it was Carrera's bag. And so he ended up giving them a third out that way. And it was the, it was the capper on a bad, maybe it was a sweep too. Uh, and then I ended up taking a red eye home. And then it was the following Monday. I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay up all day so I can reset myself back on West coast time. And then I got like a text, like 1130 or midnight saying, Hey, something might be happening. And then it ends up being the Troy Tulowitzki deal. I was up to like four in the morning chasing it. So not a lot. That was a, that may be the week I've slept least, the deadline week that I've slept the least. Um, and I think you, you were as well. So ended up being a pretty wild week there. Definitely one of the more memorable trade deadlines in Blue Jays history. Um, and a very successful one. Um, that's for sure. They've had a few of those. They've 
made some really good trades, generally speaking, um, acquiring Teoscar Hernandez. Um, you know, maybe uh, there will be more of those to come in the next week, but certainly it'll be a busy time. The executives too. I mean, this is especially coming out of the draft. Uh, big league executives uh, pretty much get ground to the dust this time of year. So uh, shout out to everyone involved in this whole process. Hopefully it ends up being an entertaining one um, for everyone involved. But you know, in the meantime, Shy, we do want to touch also on the Blue Jays pitching staff, the one that they have in place on the active roster uh, without any trades. And that includes Kevin Gosman, who returned to the mound uh, in Seattle uh, to strike out nine, allowed four runs. There goes the runner. And a swing and a miss to get Rodriguez and end the inning. Vila was down a little bit, although he did touch 97. And let's bring that into the conversation along with Hyunjin Ryu, who is seemingly on the brink of returning to the Major League rotation. Yeah, very interesting. I just ended up speaking to someone who saw Ryu over the weekend and said Ryu was really, really good, was full of praise, thought the stuff was really good, the command was really good, the sequencing, thought it was looked really sharp. And at this point, it's really just about how's Ryu recovering, right? He's pretty much there. His Vila was up a little bit in that outing. I remember looking at the StatCast data and thought, okay, this might be the best and the firmest his stuff has been since he returned. And so, yeah, we're getting to the point where like the Blue Jays can still, they still have run, enough runway with his rehab assignment for him to make two more outings uh, on that on that assignment. So it doesn't have to be this second, but if the Blue Jays feel that it can help them. And they've talked about going to potentially six-man rotation for that upcoming stretch of 17 and 17. Yeah, it looks like Ryu is ready to go. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, and I think, to me, mix him in. He's good to go. Let's let's see him in that rotation. So, you know, is that Friday? Is that Saturday? Friday, by the way, should be Shohei Otani against the Blue Jays in Toronto, which is just going to be unbelievable. Do you think they need to see him in the big leagues before the deadline just to yeah. see what it looks like at, in the major league level yeah. in terms of making your final decisions? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you want more information. And yeah, it gives your your uh, rival teams more information too. Um, if Ryu comes back and he really doesn't pitch well and you've got, you know, Gosman still recovering from the, the side issue and you've got Manoa who... You know, it was better against the Mariners, but still been an up and down time period. Maybe other teams smell some vulnerability there, but end of the day, you've got to augment your team and you've got to know what you have. So I think, yeah, you want to see Ryu in there before the deadline. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. I think you can also surrender your position. You surrender any leverage there too, right? If like, he comes back and it doesn't play and it doesn't, and it looks like there may not be a pathway, then all of a sudden your your chances of getting a starter just got a lot more difficult, right? Yeah. I think at the same time, like you look at you look at the market for starting pitching, and we talked about it a bit earlier, where like Baltimore needs one, Boston could use one, Tampa needs one. So and then that's just the American League East, right? Like you look beyond this division and the Dodgers have pretty much an entire rotation on the injured list. Like the Diamondbacks clearly mm -hmm. could use some more starting pitching help. There are teams around this league, even Atlanta, right? They've had a lot of injuries in their rotation too. So a lot of teams could use starting pitching. I think regardless of how Ryu does, the price is going to be high. It's going to be hard to acquire a good major league starting pitcher. So right. you might as well know more yourself and, and the price is high anyways. Yeah, and that and that's fair. And like, I think the other thing is that you can also convince yourself, like, hey, I don't need to be in this market. 
and we can take our resources and go spend them elsewhere. And, you know, there's obviously some risk to that, but I think the Blue Jays are starting at such a high floor from a rotation standpoint relative to their rivals. I mean, we're really talking about who's your six or who's your seven at this point for a Blue Jays rotation. You're probably not without really delving deep in your system. You're probably not getting better than the five you already have. So I think that if as long as they're convinced that they're going to be safe, they've got enough depth to survive the season. I definitely think you're better off allocating the the resources towards an offensive player and uh, another bullpen piece. Yeah, you need a bat. Absolutely need one. And a bullpen upgrade would be would be really helpful um, as well. If you could add a starter who has options and, you know, some upside. Yeah, of course you want to do that. Those guys are tough to find um, for good reason. So we will see. We'll leave that there for now on the trade deadline front. Um, but we do still have some more baseball to get to. So when we come back, we'll talk some Hall of Fame on At The Letters. All right, so beyond the actual games on the field uh, right now and the trade deadline that's approaching, Shai, you were also in Cooperstown covering off the induction of two former Blue Jays going into the Baseball Hall of Fame this past weekend. Fred McGriff goes in, obviously great power hitter with the Blue Jays in Atlanta and Tampa and elsewhere. And Scott Rowland, one of the best defensive third basemen of all time, spent some time with the Blue Jays as well as with the Reds and the Cardinals and elsewhere. So I guess, first of all, how did that go? What was that experience like uh, covering off two former Jays going into the hall? It was great. And they're the ninth and 10th players who get to the Hall of Fame who have ties to the Blue Jays. And look, the Hall of Fame, it's really a fun experience. And for people who haven't gone down or checked out the museum, uh, I was very fortunate this year. I happened to be national president of BBWA this year. So I was able to get a behind the scenes tour of the hall cool. uh, with, with one of their curators there and ended up holding a bat that Babe Ruth used. No and way. A glove that, and a glove that Lou Gehrig used. It was, it was amazing. Cool. And then, so from a selfish standpoint, that part of it was awesome. But the thing that I always love is just, you see how the enormity of it hits guys when they get finally enshrined and you know they're surrounded by all these other hall of famers on the stage and you know fred mcgriff uh, and and people kind of think about fred mcgriff throughout his career as being like this quiet guy and he was always so stoic on the field but he's like sneaky funny right and so he gets on the stage and then he shakes a couple people's hands and then all the other hall of famers are like hey what about us you got to shake all our hands so he ends up having to circle the stage and, and sort of shake everybody's hands. Uh, and it kind of makes for this, this, this neat moment. And afterwards he's like, he was like, I learned don't shake, you gotta shake one person's hand, you gotta shake everybody's hand. So you can't do that. Um, and I think it was really a, a touching speech. And one of the coolest stories he told uh, was of how, when his kids were young, they would come on the road with them. And if he was in a bit of a slump, he was trying to figure out something from a swing. He'd want to get back to the hotel room to hang out with them. So he'd like get them to throw sock balls at him. And he would try to do like hitting mechanics with either he may might bring a bat back or maybe he would just roll up a newspaper and just try to swing just to try to get, you know, his shoulder just right or his hands in the place that he wants or whatever. Uh, and it, it was 
really, really touching to hear him talk about family. And then with Scott Rowland, Blue Jay for a season and a half, very impactful. And indirectly, directly, it's because of him that the Blue Jays ended up getting Jose Batista because Scott Rowland was hurt. They had a need. Batista happened to pop up on the waiver wire. Alex Anthopoulos got permission from J.P. Ricciardi to make the deal, and, and they end up getting Jose Batista. And who would have known then how that would have turned out? And then same thing a year later when they're trading Scott Rowland to Cincinnati, and the Blue Jays wanted Zach Stewart and Josh Renicki in that deal, and the Reds were like, "Well, listen, you guys got to take Eddie back and take his money, Edwin Encarnacion, and take his money, money back to make it work." And you know, obviously. Eddie ended up getting DFA'd and there were a few things that before it locked in. And so there were other opportunities they could have missed. But the Blue Jays, there were some people at the Blue Jays who always felt that he might be able to lock it in there. And eventually he did. And then those are the guys who carry the team, the playoffs in, in 2015. So all that traces back to, to Scott Rowland. And again, you know, from a speech perspective, I think if you're a parent or, or if you're a person who's ever looking for sort of how to motivate your coworkers or your, your teammates on some team or whatever, you know, think back to the story that he told from his youth and he's at a basketball tournament and calls his dad and he's like, well, dad, I can't shoot. I can't pass. I can't dribble like these guys. Everybody's better than me. And his dad says, well, what can you do? And he says, well, I, I can out hustle everybody. He's like, okay. He goes, well, I can try to out-rebound everybody. He's like, okay. Uh, He's like, I can dive for more balls and just put more pressure and play with more energy than everybody else. He's like, okay, then go do that. And that ends up becoming, Scott Rowland said, the mantra for his entire career. We'll go and do that. And instead of looking at all the things you can't do, look at what you can do and just do what you can to the best of your ability. And it's it's a simple little message, but it's the kind of mindset that, you know, obviously everybody who gets to the Hall of Fame is incredibly talented. Everyone who gets to the major leagues is incredibly talented, but there are little separators. And that was clearly one of the separators, that mindset for Scott Rowland that helped get him enshrined. Oh, yeah. These things are not preordained, you know, like uh, among the players who are 18, 19, 20 years old with the talent to make it to the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's a small percentage that actually do. You know, and so it's the guys who can really tap into some of those lessons. Um, so those are really cool, really cool stories um, in, a, in a big weekend connected to the Blue Jays as well. So as we look ahead, Jose Bautista on the ballot next year. Beyond that, there are always names connected to the Blue Jays. Who do you think, like, I'm not saying any of these guys are first ballot. Obviously, Bautista's not going in first ballot, nor would Russell Martin. Um, but who do you think is going to be the next Blue Jay to sort of get some traction? I guess uh, first among the the writers ballot, and then you know the committee stuff is interesting too because you know there's a couple names that we could discuss there. Yeah, for sure. So I think from a writers ballot standpoint, I mean Jose Batista is really interesting. I think people will look at that peak and generally just say it's light relative to his peers and you know, the career numbers relative to other outfielders in the hall are probably a little light, even though he was tremendous. Like he's definitely very clearly a Blue Jays Hall of Famer. He's going to go up on the wall of excellence later this summer. So, you know, that's an apt recognition. But I had some interesting conversations with people over the weekend at Cooperstown about what Russell Martin's candidacy may look like. And if Yadi Molina ends up getting in, Buster Posey gets in, both and, those guys and, will get in. Right. And Brian McCann, 
does that change things for Russ? Does that maybe create a bit of a pathway to Russ? Because so much of how you vote is sort of precedent saying, well, this guy is kind of this guy, and, or this guy did some things that he's not getting recognized for, and they're relative to this, and this similar-ish body of work. And Russ Martin, in some ways, is was at the forefront of the pitch framing revolution that everybody's talking about now. And Russ was pitch framing before it was trendy, right? And, you know, think about some of the athleticism we see from catchers behind the plate now. And Russ was cut out of that mold, like, like an atypical mold where it's like, okay, this guy's an infielder, but wait, there's some, there are enough tools there that we can maybe turn it into, into something behind the plate. And so I don't know that there's a direct correlation from Russ Martin to say Gabby Moreno, but when you look at Gabby Moreno, I think a lot of the things that you see from him from a tool standpoint, like that traces back to Russ. Now, is that enough? Like, would you like to maybe see some more bulk numbers from him to sort of make that case a bit of a slam dunk? I think that's it. But I think once you get relative to say Molina and Posey and, and you think about how catchers are used within the context of this era, it's it's an interesting discussion. I I haven't delved deep enough into it the way that I would if I was about to vote on it. Right. And there's a couple of years for that, but I think that frame of reference is is a moving target right now. It it is, and you know you think about three thousand hits, like no catcher gets three thousand hits. Five hundred homers. Mm-hmm. I don't think any catcher has ever no. gotten five hundred homers, right? So no, I think you know, Carlton Fisk has the is the all time leader. Yeah, there. Piazza's around three ninety or something. Right. Yeah, Fisk might, you know, like he might be 430 or something. Yeah, it's just, it's a different position. It's a different challenge physically. You know, you look at even catchers who have 2,000 hits. That's incredible. Russ Martin, 1,400 hits, 191 homers, 39 war. Fly ball deep to left field. Get up, ball. Get up, ball. Get out of here. God. Stay hot, Russell. His third home run on the road trip. To me, that's still probably short. You know, Batista, his war is actually comparable. 36.7 war. He hit 344 home runs in the regular season. A few more in the playoffs, if I recall. And um, yeah, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> there it's might have a been a gr- famous one in there, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm, to, so, I'm a recall. little hazy on that, but I think pretty sure he hit one or two in the playoffs <laughs> as well. You know, Batista, I think, is closer um, than Russ Martin for me. Uh, I I probably, I don't have a vote yet, I probably wouldn't put either one of them on, which feels like kind of harsh because I loved watching those guys play. Such, both like versatile, different players, late career success for Batista. So fun to watch, but I don't know if they're quite Hall of Famers. But a guy who I could see getting in and who I could see getting some buzz, he would need some help from committees. But I think Dave Steve gets in eventually. I do think it happens. Yeah, Dave Steve is a really interesting one. And again, because you think about precedence so much, and I think like modern pitching thinking would have loved Dave Steve. For sure. Right? The 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 fastball slider combination, the way that he he was tunneling before everybody was tunneling. And- they would have had him throwing his slider like 40% of the time. <laughs> like 80% of the time, they're <laughs> yeah. like, never use your fastball. It, it would have been really fascinating kind of see him within this era. And then I think, you know, somebody said to me 
in Cooperstown. It's like, you know, it's just tough with the wins where his, his wins are so low. And I'm like, are we really still going to penalize yeah. a guy for being on an expansion team on a club where for a long period or at least a, a reasonable period of time, he was like the only thing worth watching as, as, as others were developing? Like that's not to me kind of where it's at. But again, the the bulk numbers relative to his peers are a little bit light. But it's like, okay, well, if Jack Morris is in, should Dave Steve not be in? Like they were the, the foil for one another for a long period of time. So I think that one's interesting. The other one I do think is interesting is that now that Fred McGriff is in, I mean, Carlos Delgado's numbers are very similar. Right, he's 20 homers lighter. He's got a higher OPS than than, than Fred did. Uh, again, there's a ton of impact. He didn't win a World Series title, but the the level of performance, the level of consistency, should have been MVP in 2003 when he got robbed by that that year. When I was like, oh, no one from a winning team has a good player, so we'll just give it to A Rod as a career achievement award, and that, that ended up being really bad. So, you know, I, I do think that Delgado he did not get a fair amount of time he got caught up in the ballot in the sort of the deep ballots and ended up not having the period of consideration that he should have on the writer's ballot you know something you know i really regret that he didn't have more time there because i think his career would the more the more people would have talked about it and considered it the better people would have reflected on it so i think there's a pathway for him now uh when you know whenever he gets to contemporary consideration uh, and then finally, at some point, you know, when you're looking at sort of builders and, and managers, you know, Cito Gaston just never got his due. And it's ridiculous that he never got another opportunity to manage in the Blue Jays, uh, in, the, in the major leagues, aside from the Blue Jays, right? This is someone who everyone was like, well, you had, you had such a deep team, you should have won. Well, a lot, of, a lot of teams have deep rosters that don't get it done. So maybe the guy who helped get them there probably played a role in that. And, you know, the more I'm talking to, to former players of Cito's, the one thing that they always talk about is how much his calmness and his resoluteness just influenced them and was so steadying for them and was such an important part of those clubs that, you know, Cito always seemed to have it under control so that they felt they had it under control. You know, that's such a that's such an asset. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I think that needs to be recognized. The fact that he's the first African-American manager yeah. to win a World Series, you know, there's certainly a historical standpoint. I mean, he's a, is this is someone who came up in the midst of, uh, you know, the civil rights movement in the United States, faced uh, in, during his playing career, faced a lot of racism that he had to overcome. Uh, roommate of Hank Aaron's, had an all-star season as a center fielder yep. with the San Diego Padres. This is somebody who's, done a lot in his baseball career in a really significant way and so uh, i i think he's on he's on the agenda too and someone who who certainly has reason to to be deeply considered so you know it seems right now like it could be potentially a gap between before there's another blue jays representative entering the hall of fame uh and from a canadian standpoint you know if it's not russ then you gotta wait until joey Votto ends yes. up getting there and he'll be in but first ballot i would i would think so but, um, you know, I, I do think from a historical perspective, you know, the names we just discussed, they're all, all meritorious from the Blue Jays perspective. Yeah, Cito should be in. I think um, it's similar to Dusty Baker in that 
you know, you're talking about a player who had a good playing career. Dusty had a better playing career. But Cito won yes. two World Series and was the first black manager. Dusty has obviously had a very uh, long and decorated managerial career, now including mm-hmm. a World Series. So, you know, they, they should both be in the Hall of Fame. That's not too controversial. Dave Steve, I don't think is controversial either anymore. I just think he should be in. I think we know enough about baseball and about what matters and what doesn't that he should be in. And Carlos Delgado, I acknowledge there's a debate. I think like given my, you know, age and demographic and I kind of grew up watching a lot of Carlos Delgado. So probably a little biased on this one. But when I look at 473 home runs and his career OPS is 929. I know it's a different era, but that was his career OPS put up over the course of 17 years. Like what an absolute um, beast at the plate Carlos Delgado was, um, you know, just getting on base all the time. You know, I understand position, era, defense, all these things, but uh, there are some interesting cases there. So we'll see if any of those get traction in the years to come. Yeah. But I, Jay Jaffe, who uh Fangraphs writer who, uh, helped create the the Jaws stat, which is a really helpful metric for evaluating players relative to the Hall of Fame. You know, I spent, uh, he and I had a couple great chats um, and we talked a little bit about how we need to try to find a better way to measure performance relative to era and to consider it within the era as again uh, as opposed to sort of considering it within what's been accomplished in the Hall of Fame. Like if you think about it, so like when Babe Ruth was hitting like 60 homers, the the the, the guys who were finishing second, they were like barely in the teens. Yeah. You right? could you like, could earn the nickname Home Run Baker if you hit like nine homers a year. Right. And what that's telling you, it's like Babe Ruth is here and the rest of the talent level is down here, right? There's such a gap between floor to ceiling at that point in time. You think about the game in the last decade and a half. To me, one of the biggest changes is that the ceiling has closed between floor and ceiling in the major leagues, right? There are a lot more players who are a lot more competitive on any given day. Like there are a lot of dudes who are throwing mid-90s who aren't necessarily absolute elite freak shows like they would have been even 15 years ago. Yeah. And so I think we have to find a way to factor that into our consideration. Like the guys who are putting up numbers right now, it is such a harder league. It's harder than ever. And, you know, it was hard for like when Dave Steve was playing, when Carlos Delgado was playing, you know, the, in the midst of the steroid area, uh, you know, as he was never linked to anything, there was never any, any suspicion around him. You know, for him to put up the numbers that he did, the way that he did it, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's it's about as close to a slam dunk as, as you can get. And, you know, I hope that that would eventually come around for Carlos. Well, um, lots to keep an eye on as uh, as we move ahead here. Shy, I know you have uh, a lot to get to, trade deadline approaching. You're a busy man. So thank you so much for taking time here on At The Letters. A pleasure as always. Enjoy L.A., and uh, enjoy Dodger Stadium. I believe your first time there. It is. I'm excited to see it. It looks like um, looks like it'll be an awesome place to watch a few ball games. So um, that should be fun. We'll see what happens with the Jays on the field. I don't know what to expect there, but um, I will be writing about uh, whatever happens uh, in the next few days for Sportsnet.ca. So keep your eyes out on that. And uh, Arden will be back next week um, as he and I wrap up 
the trade deadline. So keep an eye out for that episode in a week's time. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening to At The Letters. We know there's a ton of great content out there. So I definitely appreciate you uh, hitting play on ATL. And thanks as well to our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade for making this happen. We will talk to you soon on At The Letters.